After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to Mind Rolling, our new podcast, and I'm Raghu Marcus. I'm David Silver, accompanying Raghu, and we have a very special guest today. Yes, Duncan Trussell. Hello. Hi, Duncan. Hi, Duncan. Hi, guys. Duncan, uh, gee, uh, we're going to have to, uh, you know, have a, a, a long laundry list of what Duncan does, and... Uh, but really, there's only one word, as far as we're concerned, and that's, he's our guru. Guru. <laughs> Guruji. All great gurus laugh. They all laugh you when you call them. You in trouble. Well, that's, that's been proven. <laughs> but you are our guru. So don't deny it. We would not be doing this without you. Be nowhere. Nothing. Uh, I, be- I believe that the, um, uh, doesn't Ramdas say, uh, the teacher points the way and the guru is the way so in this situation i'm definitely more teacher than guru well it's all you know one word over another we're gonna call you guru okay yeah okay i'll take it but isn't that a funny word that word is it's such a a charge that's a word nobody understands but it's got such charge to it oh that uh it really is a magical word well, Ramdas wrote a book about it a year ago to say this is what a guru really is, and uh, it's called Be Love Now. By the way, we need to, uh, you know, Duncan, we have a sponsor now. Oh, congratulations. Who's the sponsor? Audible.com. Oh, yeah, great. Congrats. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank and you. Uh, Thank you. Thank David, you have something to say about that? Yeah, Audible is Audible.com is the primo audiobook company in the world, maybe the solar system. And um, they are, they're offering, you know, if you if you take a, a 30-day free trial, you get a free book. I don't know whether the book is, you know, like a little tiny book about fishing or war and peace. <laughs> but whatever you want, you get it. And we think that's great. And we're, we love the fact that they're doing this because it makes sense. We're Audible. We're audio. We're .com. So, well, uh, yeah, and you can get the Brothers Karamazov if you want to spend the rest of your life listening to dreary Russian existentialism. Yes. It's like 200 hours of, of a book. I it's did on it. There. I did it. Really? And, and before we tell people who you really are, I want to say that James Joyce once was at a dinner party in Dublin. And somebody said to him, you know, James, I can't spend my life reading Finnegan's Wake. It'll take me my whole 70 years. And he said, <laughs> so? Um, it's the end of the story, but it's not, it's not screamingly funny, but you know, it's true. It happens to be true. That book's amazing. I I, I have not read that entire book, but, uh, because Terrence McKenna is such a disciple of that book. I, oh, I really? picked it up and, and read some of it and it is astoundingly difficult to understand, but really beautiful. I guess amazing. you kind of just have to let go to the idea that you're you have to let accept that you're not going to understand what it is. Maybe. Well, we got to. Uh, we have to say who you is. Yeah, about please, right yeah. now, and uh, and maybe a little bit of a backstory. But uh, Duncan lives in Los Angeles and travels the nation, um, uh, doing stand-up comedy as well as he has a dynamite podcast. Duncan Trussell. What's the name of it? It's called the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. The Duncan Trussell Family Hour. And there's some stuff in there that's not so family-oriented, but it's <laughs> really funny. <laughs> and, it depends on your definition of family. It's more Jim Jones-style family. Yeah, than, right. Yes, exactly. Traditional uh, family. 
So uh, Duncan and I met through this gentleman named Ramdas, who uh, those of you who have uh, heard uh, Duncan's podcast, of which there'll probably be a few of you by the time this uh, hits the airwaves, um, it's uh, it was uh, it was love at first sight, right? Oh man, you blew my mind. <laughs> I because y- you know when you. One really cool thing about you and one really cool thing about Ramdas is that you don't you don't look your mind constructs ideas of how like a very spiritual person or an advanced person or a higher vibrational frequency person should look and should behave mm. and 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 um this is like one of the this is idolatry and one of the most limiting things I think a person can do and the the you know the great teachers are the ones who just shatter that idea that there's some specific way of being because this is something you told me once uh which uh, which i'll 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 remember for the rest of my life was which is it's what's in between the lines you know it's what's coming out when someone's done a great deal of spiritual Mm. work they could probably be talking about the phone book and the stuff coming out of them is still going to be this fascinating powerful beautiful energy Mm. when you left my apartment i had not smoked marijuana but i was <laughs> god i am so stoned right now i'm just baked i'm baked why did i get so high did i eat pot and then i realized oh man i just got vibed out by you no you really gave you really put the juice in me and it lasted for a, a while not scary high either but a kind of delightful <laughs> wonderful feeling Anyhow, so yeah i love it first sight i'll call it that yeah sure. Right, and that's that's all, that's the common denominator. So anyhow, we re- obviously really hit it off, and and Duncan just uh, it turned us on because uh, I am involved, and so is David in the uh, Love Serve Remember Foundation that Ramdas started, and uh, you know just putting stuff out media uh, to the uh, digital media and so on. It allows him to continue teaching. We'll talk about more more of that uh, you know later or in another day. But that certainly was the the bonding. Um, feature that we we had together, and uh, you, you have to say you invited me out, and we uh, in Los Angeles when I was out there, and said come do a podcast. Yes. And one of the interesting things about that, sorry to go on like this, Dave. Go on. I'm very fascinated. You are. Yes, I yeah. am. You it's probably a... heard this story about three million times. No, so. I no. just heard Duncan, you know, and you well, together on the podcast. Well, we I, did I, this thing, and I'm Duncan made... talked to me about whatever it was that turned. It's really. The formative nature of what made this podcast came came from there, because uh, you know he we were doing what we, he was talking about what uh, what those transformers were what what were the things that really you know made the change for us and and how do we get there and and so on and so forth so uh, that was something that uh, you know basically from that jump was. Gee, and and it was all Duncan. It was you just saying, "Hey, why don't you go out and do something?" And remember, I said, "Yeah, I got a friend. We could, you know, we certainly could get into some nice conversations about this stuff." Yeah, you know. So really, that was the genesis of it, and and going on your show and so on. And what it takes me back to is when I first personally met Ramdas. Of course, I told you this. I met him in Montreal. I was the program director of a major rock and roll station, and they said, "Hey, you, you know." Uh, we want you to advertise that Ramdas is giving a lecture at McGill, and then bang, you know, who's what's that? You know, what's a Ramdas? And uh, Tim Leary and Richard Alpert, of course. And I said, well, I love those people. They sent me a tape, and the rest is is history. We I, we just started broadcasting Ramdas, and I went to m- meet him, and you know, it was just this magnetism. So what we did together, what forty odd years later, was full circle. And that is a bunch of what we're trying to do with mind rolling, by the way, is talk about the full circle nature of what we went through in late 60s, early 70s, and that transformation and what's happening now. And this is due to you telling me that there's, you know, of course, we see it. People come to Ramdas from their 20s and 30s, you know, a lot more these days. But there is parallels. And that speak to that, would you, Duncan? Sure. Well, you know, it's a kind I mean, if you get it, getting into causality is delightful especially when it's like positive causalities it's really fun to to map it out and it's very 
human to try to map it out. It's really interesting. So if you consider it where it gets really strange is that, uh, you know, it ultimately all ties back to Neem Karli Baba because um, his information this man in a blanket started giving like information to Alpert, to Ramdas, and then he was able to articulate that information in a really mm. uh, easily digestible way for a lot of people. And then, so that right. information spread into society via all his books and lectures, and that influenced other people who, you know, wrote their own versions of it. And there's a lot of other examples besides Ramdas, you. Uh, Krishna Das, all the various people who came in contact with that man and indirectly came in contact with that man. I've heard Steve mm. Jobs had be here now by his bed when he was dying. I don't know how true that is, but that's true. That's that's true. floats out there in the air. Yeah. So in that so in that way, you've got this anonymous man living in a valley, just talking <laughs> about love, or or it's I know that's a reduction of it, but it's much bigger well, than more that, being, and that creates this more being. strange type of spiritual nuclear explosion that gets you know blasted through people and it ends up with me years ago when i'm in college on acid reading be here now in my dorm room and seeing a picture of neem carolee baba and immediately thinking like man i know i feel like i know that guy i just kept thinking is that that guy reminds me of some i definitely run into that guy before and then um and then, of course, you know, over the next many, many years, always coming back to um, Grist for the Mill or Be Here Now and really listening to that philosophy. And, and, and you know, as you get older, it goes from being a kind of recreational activity to being a, like a medicine. Mm. You know, like when you're young, it's like, this is groovy, man, the <laughs> astral plane. <laughs> and then when you start getting older, you're like, I'm definitely going to die. And then then it starts becoming more of like, you really want to start um, getting into it deeper. And so then that's when I thought, okay, I'm going to contact Ram Dass's foundation and see if I can help them in some way, do some kind of service, you know, cause that's always the, some advice people give is like, you, you know, start doing some service, start doing service Mm. work. There's a name for it. And I can't remember what that is. But so that's when I contacted you guys. And then the end result of that is that we're sitting here talking and a podcast has happened where the nuclear explosion continues in the form of this strange electronic medium (laughs) that's now carrying the exact same stuff that was carried around. And I guess the medium that was floating in Alpert's head, yeah, his but brain, you know, you know? Uh, his final instructions that Ramdas got the day that he left uh, the foothills of the Himalayas, where he met this being, named Karoli Baba. He was going back to America, and <laughs> Maharaji, which is what we called him, said to Ramdas, "Now, don't tell anybody about <laughs> me. Nobody. Don't say a word." That was his instructions. It wasn't do yoga or anything. It was, and what happened was the exact opposite. How crazy is that? You know, the exact opposite. Anyhow, so uh, back to this is how we met and uh, and a little bit of his backstory and so on. And I'd like to, uh, let me jump to, I mean, uh, you're, Pod, you're a master at this. You are the guruji of these podcasts. But can you tell a little bit about how did you come into it? And uh, I know you had a mentor and, uh, you know, people would be interested to hear just how some of this stuff works. And, and, and folks, what Duncan mixes in into this podcast uh, is a, a tremendous brew of entertainment and consciousness. I mean, it is really something. And uh, so talk to me a little about it. Well, that what what it is. You know, it's a um, as a comedian, the uh, it's a it's funny. Stand up comedy can, is kind of like a haiku. Uh, it's a bit of a limited form and communicating ideas, which mm. is why a lot of comedians like fantasize about the idea of like being rock stars because rock stars can stand on stage and 
seeing like seeing a, a sad stuff or seeing you know romantic stuff or kind of hit other areas that a comedian it's it, you can't quite hit without seeming indulgent or preachy or you know just on stage you really have to there's a real specific rhythm to stand mm. up yeah and so podcasts are create this cool way to incorporate all the stuff you learn from doing stand-up comedy which is just this there's a rhythm and almost a math to, to comedy uh mm. it allows you to like use all that stuff you learn but then it gives you more of a um, it lets you uh, relax more into like deeper ideas and it doesn't always have to end on a punchline, which is right. a real freeing feeling for a, a comic. And then the other amazing thing about um, podcasts, uh, as we're calling them now, I'm sure that name's going to change eventually because it's a name based on one, like only one type of technology that you can listen to them on. You can listen to them on anything now. They're in, yep. you know. Apple TV, they're on Netflix, not Netflix, but on Xboxes. You can listen to yeah. them. They're, they're in some cars. It's built into dial-up podcasts at this point, I think. Really? So anyway, the up until a very short time ago, um, the ability to get information out into the world was limited to your access to the distribution mechanism. And that distribution mechanism up until a very short time ago has always been controlled by um, – capitalists generally i mean from time to time obviously there's like activists who who've had printing presses and stuff but in the extreme generally the reason people want to distribute information and ideas has embedded within it a, 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 an idea of like making some profit from that i'm not saying that's terrible or whatever but what that means is that ideas that might not be palatable hmm. to a large group of people are not going to be the ideas picked by the people running right. distribution mechanisms to uh to send out into the world because what's yeah. the point? So that what that means is if you if you want to as a comedian, if you if you're a little on the weird side, you're not going to make it onto Conan O'Brien. You're not going to get on Jay Leno necessarily. Uh, and that that was the used to be as a comedian. That was the only way to get out to people that to to get a following or to uh, get people to come see you at clubs. And so that so and also when you went and got on TV, maximum five minutes, six minutes, mm -hmm. maybe. Uh, recently, you know, you'd get your Comedy Central half hour and an hour, but it's still this half hour that's been censored by a group of people. I, I went with to New York with a friend of mine who did a Comedy Central half hour special, and one of the most bizarre moments was when I walked into this room where she was sitting with a group of executives who had her act listed on a sheet, and these people were the most miserable looking people you've ever seen in your life they were just so serious and they're in business formal business wear mm. like suits like wall street suits looking at her set list and going through it word by word trying to change certain words that don't that they thought would offend people or wouldn't make oh, it through okay. standards and practices mm -hmm. right, so just right. think about that that filter yeah. of fear that filter of censorship is is what that kind of art goes through before it mm. makes it onto TV. And then the art, of course, is interrupted by commercials selling pharmaceuticals and cars. And then also the person that you're seeing perform is not in a moment that you're going to see them at a comedy club. Mm -hmm. They're terrified. It, this might be one of the biggest moments of their life. And if they fail, oh, man, it's the worst. So also... Also, the other weird thing about that medium of getting comedy out into the world is that before those shows start, a guy comes out and he says, if you think this is funny, laugh. If you think it's not funny, laugh harder. Mm -hmm. So right. what that does is it throws the comedian's timing into this very weird place where you come out on stage and the people start laughing at your setup. Instead of your punchline, because they've just been told that they've got to laugh at everything. <laughs> yeah, so, that's nice and bizarre. Yeah, it's, um, but, it's bizarre, yeah. Yeah, uh, tell me one thing, though. So when you started doing these things, was it strictly uh, – was the material strictly um, um, just the – from the stand-up act or ideas that were around, you know, comedic ideas and so on? Did consciousness slip in, uh, you know, later? What happened there? Oh, yes. Well, yeah, I, for, I think probably from the very beginning, the spiritual stuff was always came out because that's where my mind is just always 
rolling around those ideas constantly. My mind, I didn't mean to say the name of your show. My mind's always spinning around those ideas. So, um, <laughs> you know, it naturally comes out. It naturally came out. It wasn't like I, I thought to myself, this podcast is going to be for this one thing. It was mm-hmm. more like, uh, it, it was my, uh, my, I was living Stream with my girlfriend. We're both comedians. We'd, uh, we knew that we'd done a podcast. That's what happened. We went to someone's house and did a podcast with them and it was a blast. And after we did the podcast, a lot of people responded to it positive in a real positive way. And that encouraged us to want to do our own podcast. And so we just started doing it, doing it Mm because it was fun. I mean, it's a form of self-expression that's just a blast. Well, we've been doing some of these uh, now, as you know, we've we've just uh, it's a pretty brand new thing. We're just starting out and um you know, we it has been fun sharing, and we uh, we've uh, had guests on like you at this point, and uh, and I think someone has been very very quiet here. This man ge- generally is. Um, I talk all the time, this, <laughs> but, but actually, this is a record. It's a it's a it's a miracle. You haven't said a word in I don't know how long we've been on here. Fifteen twenty minutes. Uh, well, you know, without sounding too um, bromancy, I'm, I'm, fasc- <laughs> I'm not, no, I'm fascinated by what Duncan's saying because a couple of things, Duncan, I, that I wanted to say. I've always said that, maybe falsely, and uh, the the '60s were fifty years ahead of their time, and we haven't yet caught up with that. And one of the things that happened in the '60s that people don't talk about much. I came to America in 1966 from mm-hmm. England. And the first couple of things that blew my mind were American rock bands that I didn't know in England and Richard Pryor. Oh, wow. Now, Richard Pryor was uh, frequently on on Johnny Carson's show. And it was the most surreal thing because, uh, you know, or Ed Sullivan, surrounded by jugglers and uh, Freddie and the Dreamers at best. And what struck me about Richard Pryor was that he was a whole new level of comedy. I won't use the word spiritual or dimensional, but there was a dimension to Pryor that changed everything, and Carlin too, and then later Robin Williams. When you talk about the freedom given to you by this new dist- sort of democratized distribution systems, it's marvelous, and I'll tell you why, in my opinion. When Richard Pryor really became big, when Robin Williams really became big, when the people from Saturday Night Live really became big, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Mike Myers, Eddie Murphy, all these people, the system pushed them into movies and into yes. sitcoms. And I hope none of them are listening, but it deteriorated. The kind of freedom that you saw even on the Carson show with Pryor and those guys was very rarely exhibited in feature movies or sitcoms. I watched Mork and Mindy. It made me smile. Robin Williams made me fall on the floor. Richard Pryor killed me with his rebellious, you know, completely fourth-dimensional humor and his attitude and his timing. But once the system ate them up and people realized they were popular and people liked them, they immediately became movie stars or TV stars, and it went down. I'd never seen anything as great as Robin Williams' Shakespeare rap, his one-hour Shakespeare rap, which was one of the first shows on HBO in 1984 or 83, about that. I don't know if you've seen it, Duncan. I haven't it, seen it. It's astonishing. I did see Carlin perform at the Comedy Store, and it was mind-blowing. Same, similar thing, stream of consciousness. And even though they, they weren't doing exactly what your particular amalgam is, what I've heard of it, which is new uh, and ancient too, because we don't know whether, you know, Aristotle was funny too and Socrates was funny too. <laughs> we don't know any of that stuff. We do know that... Well, Rom- I, you know what? I bet they're pretty funny based on uh, um, uh, Socrates' apo- the apology of Socrates is a right. pretty funny thing. If you read that, it's hilarious. Yeah. Well, when they know, were when he decided to drink the poison, and he said, uh, "Well, you know, if you if I drink this and and there's nothing after this, and it's like the deepest best part of sleep, then you've done the greatest favor anyone's ever done to me. So thanks. Yeah, he but was, yeah, he if was I amazing. don't die and there is this and it continues on, I'm just going to keep doing exactly what I'm doing here. <laughs> so, meh, you lose no matter what. That's brilliant. I love that. That was an incredible way to um, to really uh, transcend the uh, paradigm that they were trying to force him into. And I think that's what uh, really great stand-up comedy does is it uh, accurately analyzes a particular part of the zeitgeist or uh, the particular ridiculous 
whatever the ridiculous paradigm happens to be being adhered to by the most amount of people in society, whenever a comedian comes onto the scene, they're able to look at that and realize the absurdity of it and then kind of talk about that in ways that uh, make people laugh. And the reason it makes people laugh is because it's this energy release as they come in contact with the truth. Mm. You know? Well, and you know, Ramdas was very, very funny from the get-go. When I first saw him talk, I was astonished because he got through every which way possible. And one of the most profound ways was by making us scream with laughter at his own self-enquiry. You know, I mean, when he started talking about some of the the you know, erring ways that he would admit to that we all have and have, yes. that just broke, that broke the glass. There was no, there was nothing between us and him. Uh, of course, he was an amazing performer. His timing was great, you know, but that humor, that comedy, that perspective was one of the things that magnetized me to him immediately because I knew he wasn't pompous and he wasn't full of crap. And, well, it, it's know, that form you know. of exorcism that I lo I love that that form of exorcism, shame exorcism, and I mm. think Ram Dass does that. And that's one thing that I really love about him is that he um, uh, is so good at getting you past the thing where you feel guilty about whatever the thing is that you think so terrible that you're doing because everybody's got something that they think is just the worst thing anyone on earth has ever done, and and and. Uh, you know, my, the biggest experience I ever had with that is I, I was really depressed in college and I did something that you usually generally, I don't think you should do if you're depressed, but I did it anyway, as I chomped a bunch of mushrooms and, um, <laughs> went wandering out into this, uh, field in my school. And it was just this field of flowers and I'm depressed, man. I mean, I am d. Press. Like if someone's playing guitar and singing something nice in their dorm rooms, I'm rolling my eyes. I'm wandering through the halls of that school like some kind of ring wraith from Tolkien, just just a just <laughs> pissed and depressed. <laughs> and I and I walk out into that field and it was just like I just got hit with this blast of love that wasn't coming from any one place, but it was this, just this sense of the universe saying to me, I love you. I love you. I love you. You're fine. You're fine. And I love you. And you're wonderful. And th there was this realization that I had at that moment where I understood that I was the one that wasn't forgiving myself. Mm. It wasn't anything in the world. It was me. I was the one that was um, oppressing myself and pushing my head into the mud and rolling my eyes at myself. And, you know, that was an, there was a big relief that happened then and it didn't last. You know, I, I went back to, and I still do from time to time go into the place of being really hard on myself. But I think that's something that great comedians and great teachers like Ram Dass do is they make you understand that, that you're absolutely forgiven. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, people say, Duncan, that, you know, the ego is the center of narcissism and self-absorption. But you could say that being feeling unworthy and depressed about yourself is the center of narcissism. Absolutely. You know, you know because you're then thinking that the world is dark and you're dark within it. And you're the darkest imaginable. As you said before, when Ramnas would talk about his innards, his... Uh, psychological innards, you know. It was a great relief, wasn't it? You sat in that audience, you listened to the tape, whatever it was. And great comedians do this too. I mean, Bill Hicks, you know, who was one of my idols. Yes. Um, you know, he did that. And when I saw him live once many, many, many years ago, um, I came out of it with not such a different feeling from, from Ramdas or other great teachers that, you know, okay, I'm not such a horrible, guilty swine. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and that's just what, I'm just repeating what you said. I'm interested, Duncan... Uh, if you allow me for a minute to ask you some deconstructing things, it sometimes is problematic, but when you perform, when you do things, is it stream of consciousness? Do you have a bunch of notes? Do you have a skeletal idea of what you're going to say? Or do you just, you know, do you just let it fly? Well, how do you do it? Bill Hicks has a great quote where Bill Hicks says, yeah, your jokes are safety parachutes for when your improv isn't working. <laughs> so... It's like you have all the – I do have a set. I mean I do have jokes that, that you, you have to. Yeah, God, I would, I would so love to not be chained to the material 
And, and there are moments where you transcend the material and you're just in the moment and talking, but, but you, you do slide back into jokes because jokes are, are, um, uh, they, they grow, you know, they're like plants. So you'll come up with like an initial idea and then that idea, when you start doing it on stage, it will, their little tributaries will begin to develop around that idea that lead to aspects of it that you hadn't even thought. And also you'll realize where the rhythm is and you'll realize where people are responding to it. And so over the course of doing a joke, maybe 15 times, the thing that you came up with in the beginning and the thing that it is in the end are going to be two very different things. Mm -hmm. So it's like you go on stage with a few ideas that you want to talk about and you have aspects of those ideas that have punchlines and places where there's laughs. And it's kind of a mixture of like, it's a weird form of linguistic peekaboo where mm. you seem like you're going in one direction and then all of a sudden you'll throw something out that is completely the uh, uh, diametrically opposed to what you're saying. But if you do that in the right way in, a in the right timing, that'll make people laugh. And so that's kind of the structure of it. And then within that structure, you actually try to say stuff in between those moments of peekaboo. And it's a kind of weird mm. combination of snake charming and playing with a a giant baby consisting of the number of people who are existing in that audience, you know, yeah. and like trying to, to sort of, um, do the magic tricks that go along with comedy. But then within those magic tricks, articulate the ideas that you've been thinking about and philosophies that you have that are hopefully, and will be completely unique if you're being honest with yourself, because mm. everyone's very unique, like uh, uh, everyone not very unique is unique. Everyone's unique. And, and, and that's why above the comedy store, when you go into the comedy store, there's this sign that Mitzi, the owner of the place, had painted and put up there about the open mic where she says for three minutes, because they give people three minutes on Sundays and Mondays to just try comedy for three minutes, not to be funny, but to be yourself. Mm, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Um, listen, to move this into uh, a little bit of a different direction is to talk about, or, uh, you know, uh, something I've been really wanting to hear from you is we have been talking to the people that we've been talking to and amongst our, you know, David and I, uh, about what reality is there to, and you and I have talked about this, the connection of the stressors that we had in the time that we got transformed, which is in our mid-20s, basically, early mid-20s, and then, you know, into the 30s. At that time, what was going on, you know, the, there was a severe war, the Vietnam War. There was, uh, you know, a severe uh, pressure, societal pressure on you know, car being carved into a box, and that's that's where you had to you know perform from and come from and live from and 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 so on and so forth, um, and just to today, major war. It's been going on for a long time. Um, you know, real stressors relative to polarization, and uh, which we had, you know, that was going on back then, uh, to, you know, stressors of economic stressors and, and so on, although these stressors have probably been, you know, way more than that was back then. But do you see, um, I mean, because you've said to me, my audience is interested in hearing about what to do, you know, in terms of day-to-day day how to be happier, how to live, uh, you know, uh, in a, in a, uh, in a way that is balanced. Uh, is, do you think it's true? Do I think it's true that, you, people, can, that there's a movement for, of people waking up right now? Yeah. That's similar to that. Those that, you know, the boomers that woke up in the late sixties and early seventies. Do you think? Yeah. It's yes. I do. I think it's a little different. I think it's different. I think the, yeah, you know, the sixties were, um, if you look at the 60s, one important facet of the 60s uh, is the draft, which we don't have right now. Right. So there was always the looming threat that you were going to get um, dragged to a jungle and have to kill people you don't know or you go to jail. Yeah, right. So that's they, a stressor. So that, that's <laughs> a, that was like a, a, a mistake that the military industrial complex made. And the interesting fact, the thing about the military industrial complex 
um, is, is that it's a, it's a, it, they learn from their mistakes. And so they're really good now at, um, um, keeping us, uh, nice and distant from the war that's happening right now. Yeah. There's no draft. People go to the war who go now. It, they say there's no draft, of course, but there is, if you're in an inner city or you were born, if your incarnation happens to be in the wrong place to the wrong parents or to an, a, a, a challenging incarnation, and you find yourself in some inner city and you are surround, you know, surrounded by uh, drug addiction, crime, anger, um, and you have the motivation that you want to make money and you know that it'll pay for your education, then it's really easy to get tangled up with a, uh, the, the military. Right. And you'll, you'll get into the so, – so it's not really a draft – but it is uh, you. There is a compulsion to go there because the ROTC comes to your schools and they, you know, really paint a pretty grim picture of your future if you don't have the help of the military to pay for your education. Those now, we, commercials, we, man, they're amazing. They show yeah. the commercials that, that they show for yes, joining yes. the military. They always show these people in control rooms. Yeah, you right. But right. I mean, you're like in this nice air conditioned room that looks <laughs> like it's from 24. You know, like there's nice computers and just lights, and it's really nice. They they don't show you covered in your friends' entrails. Duncan, I have to say this: what you just said is so central. It's not just an ancillary point you made there. The fact that we were petrified that we were going to end up in rice paddies in North Vietnam, shot at, murdered, or whatever, was the impetus was the absolute thing that gained the traction that sent people into the streets that made John Lennon write those songs and Bob Dylan and Jerry Garcia write yes. those songs. That was the thing. Now that, that, that college kids and upper middle class kids are not afraid of that, it is not there. The other point you made, which I, you know, I don't want to sound so you know, psychophantic here, but the other point you made about it is still a draft because those who exist in poverty and adversity of a kind that most of us don't ever see will see that this is the only way out without seeing the reality of what war really is. So those two points you made, I cannot stress enough how much I believe that that was the impetus for the massive protests in Washington. I went to the one where there were two million people. Um, that are was you, the are you talking about Occupy Wall Street? I'm talking about Occupy Wall Street now, but the, the one in Washington in 1968, oh, which yeah. I went to, uh, which was huge beyond belief, most of the people there were draftable age. And, you know, that was the thing that made us fight it because it was, yes. it was fear. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and see, here's the here's – the, um, this is the uh, this is why I say I think that the uh, the '60s uh, was a, a, a form of revolution or a, 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 a combination revolution renaissance that happened, and the engine of the '60s was the access to psychedelics that was initially. Um, paradoxically uh, introduced to us through the CIA uh, and MKUltra and the Cold War and their attempt to try to uh, come up with a truth serum or a way to like interrogate people to um, uh, grab information from them. That's that's a weird paradox. And also the paranoia and fear of knowing that if you're if some number gets, you know, if the dice roll the wrong way, then you will get taken to the jungle or you've got to lie. You know, the option is you have to dishonor yourself and lie to get out of going to, to fight and, and, and or you just go to the jungle and, and you end up, you know, killing people and dropping napalm on people. And um, you do this so that the, a, a small group of people can make money from war machines. And that's a kind of sad thing when you realize that a lot of people's initial interest in singing about love and peace was not wanting to get blown up or kill people Absolutely. rather than some kind of connection with a mm. transcendent idea that we're supposed to be vehicles for love. That's okay. I get it. But the, the difference, so that's a big difference now. What people don't realize, this thing that just happened with uh, the uh, video that has angered the uh, Muslims and caused them to attack embassies, everyone's like, oh, these, these Muslims, uh, Islam's supposed to be a nation of peace. How can they burn down one of our embassies that are just out there trying to steal their oil? Why would they want to burn an embassy down? To put it in perspective, according to the Associated Press, the United States over the last 10 years has murdered 110 thousand Iraqis. Think about that. 
110,000 people. The distance from Egypt to Baghdad is pretty much the distance from Los Angeles to Portland. So um, imagine, be, you know, if you were in Los Angeles and the Russians had invaded Portland and Seattle and killed 110,000 people. Imagine yes. how you would feel. You'd be a little uptight. You wouldn't drive by the Russian embassy with a big grin on your face thinking, <laughs> oh, you know, they were just trying to find weapons of mass destruction that weren't there. And they accidentally killed 110,000 of us. Hmm. Point, you'd be point like, taken. You'd point want taken. them out of your country. Yeah. Yes, yes. Hey, listen, let's switch gears again because we're sorry about we're, that. We're getting to. Right. I didn't mean. I didn't mean to go weather underground on you guys. <laughs> yeah, right. I was going to say before though that the other way that we did get uh, that people uh, who were not wanting to go over to the jungles. Uh, came to Canada, where I was, and uh, we would uh, shift them over the border. So there was another way. There was a third rail on that one, just uh, yeah, to my, let you know. I wish I'd have done that because I, you didn't, wa I didn't want to go through what I went through. Because when Well, I said, you, guys, you, you might get a chance to do it again, you guys. Not to be a, a doom and gloom person, but if you take a look geez. at what's happening right now, uh, and, and, you were, and this is why I say this stuff, and this is the stuff that I, 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 you know, I've been talking about more on stage, is because I think that we are in a crisis situation and the crisis is a crisis of people ignoring reality for what it really is right now and that is the that is going to be um uh you can't just keep doing that yeah, but, you know, but 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 the you uh, one thing to remember in all of this to be able to properly take actions that you believe would support change you have to come from a place of non-aggression and non-usser them. That means a lot of work on yourself before you can do these things effectively. I mean, yes, that's you're right. I absolutely mean, I know you're right. I mean, this is kept why I get mind. so shrill because inside of me is just like you know a confused, a lot of confusion and anger, and and I know that like when you really like get focused the way that you articulate these ideas can be a lot more digestible. And, and I know that if you just say the truth flat out to people, then they turn, they, you know, that defense, they contract and their defense. No, it's not even that. Up. It doesn't matter what you say. It's what you vibrate, the energy you're vibrating. If you're the way that you're reaching out by whatever means, you know, joining move on or whatever it is, if you are not vibrating from a place of, uh, non-polarization, nothing's right. going to happen. I don't care what you do. You, it's just doing what they're doing. Right, it's the right, same right, thing. Right, right, right. So, I always forget them. Yeah, we, we, we all forget it all the time. We forgot it in the 60s. But, you know, the truth of the matter is I, I read this thing Yoko said recently. She said that John Lennon grew so much so quickly from, he said that, you know, the Vietnam War was the thing that made him write politically relevant songs. But by the end of, of his life, which was only 40 years old, let's face it, uh, he was writing, give peace a chance and all you need is love. And that's, I think, what Raghu was talking about to some extent. Maybe, maybe we have to go through a process sometimes of anger, as long as we come out of it the other end, whereby we realize that we don't want to do what they're doing. And that nothing ever good came from, you know, from shooting back in a way. And when you, you, when, you, you know, you know I, here's the, maybe you guys can help me figure this one out. There's a letter I just read that Gandhi sent to, I can't remember who it was in the UK um, regarding Hitler. Hmm. And he was telling them not to fight. He said, let the Germans come into your house, have your stuff, you know, because he was like an ultra pacifist, right? And, and if they had done that, then I, I don't know how, what kind of planet we'd be living on right now. Isn't no, there a place it, where the philosophy of pure pacifism becomes irrelevant? It's not nothing, you know, it's back to, you know, this, there's a Hindu text called the Bhagavad Gita, right? And yes. it's about warring between families, basically. And it's about, you know, Krishna telling the char his chariot driver, Arjun, you, who doesn't want to go and fight. He does not want to kill his relatives, and he said, you have to do what you've got to do, but you're going to do it without attachment. I mean, that's a simplification of this. Yeah. But it's, it's what we're talking about. We are not talking about anything but what's inside the person. We are not talking about the actions. Okay, so right. whether it's passivism or, 
you you know you have to take some other uh, you're taking action by you know being in a crowd that that suddenly the police start to do you, you know send tear gas in and you know you get asphyxia I mean whatever you know I mean that is part of what you need to do then you do it but you're not doing it from a place of anger and attachment you're doing it completely from a balanced place now that is awfully difficult for anybody to do and but we are here to be as conscious as we can be so when you talk about the stuff that you're talking about and the liability of all these people who have been killed and so forth and the anger and hurt that we all have, you have to back up into a, a balanced place of uh, these people, everybody only wants, as, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, they, everybody wants to be happy ultimately. The fact that these people are awfully misguided and leading you know, the country into things that they, you know, have done in the past. It's like, you know, and Ramdas's great example is I keep, uh, you know, when George, George W. was president, he said, I have to keep him on my altar with my gurus and with, uh, you know, everybody who I, I pay homage to because I need to connect with the soul. There is there's something behind, beyond, behind all this. I don't have to like his incarnation. So I think wow. that's what we're talking about. He said, he said that George Bush, unfortunately, had what he called a lousy incarnation. Yeah. <laughs> so that we should, we should actually, you know, have charitable love for that, because those of us that maybe are not full of hatred and don't want to hurt indigenous peoples across the world are kind of lucky if you think about it. Because we live in a, a place inside of ourselves which is not so hate, which is not a hater. If you are a hater, my goodness, how difficult it is to to overcome that without some kind of epiphany or revelation. So, in a sense, one has to have, you know, compassion and some degree of forgiveness for those that are consumed uh, by the desire to control the planet. Yeah, there's a great yeah. blog actually. Ramdas just put out on ramdas.org. By the way, everybody. Certainly check out that site. And uh, one last question, because uh, we got to go. We got someone waiting in line. We got people waiting in line to talk to us here, Duncan. <laughs> okay, and, before uh, your question, I just want to say that you guys are so cool. This is oh. what I love about you guys. This is what I love about Ramdas is that you're like that idea of putting George Bush on your altar is so beautiful and so much smarter. Because, I mean, I can work myself into it. It's so... It's so much easier for me to work myself up into a hippie stoner froth than it is to sit and meditate for 10 minutes. Well, it's not about meditating either. Nothing like it's, it's What is it about? It's about awareness. I mean, we just – you have awareness. Yeah, right. That makes sense. You know, I, I, if I'm not balanced, how can I have any real effect, you know? Uh, and again, on Ramdas.org is a wonderful podcast that's all about energy and what that really is. Uh, last question, just the people that are in your audience, and you have a, a wonderful audience and, and a, a large, I mean, listen, uh, didn't you do a podcast recently? It was about uh, a couple of months ago, a few months ago, it was about what to do about unwanted hair that ended up being about Aldous Huxley. Is that, yeah, yes. is that right? <laughs> I mean, so that's the, the insanity yeah. of this man. Uh, you know, that's another, we'll have to talk. We could have a whole podcast about what the hell you were thinking then, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll wait for another time. But the audience that you have, are you, tell us, why do you think they are interested in some of this stuff that we're talking about at this point in time, 2012? Well, uh, I think that, um, that, that the uh, ability to get real information has never been, um, it, it, we've never had so much access to real information before. So I think that the reason people are interested in listening to these kinds of conversations is the same reason that people who've been eating prison cafeteria food for a long time would love to eat a, like, a, you know, a nice uh, nutritional meal. There's been a kind of uh, 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 people, you know, the way people get vitamin deficiencies, well, people have a bit of a truth deficiency and, and people love to, to, to hear, uh, information that um that allows them to have tools to get outside of 
popular culture or the dominant paradigm because it's uh, like what you just said, you know, that the, the interaction we just had, you to me, you know, it, you, you're like a firefighter who just like put out an, a, a small little brush fire. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's really cool. Like now I'm like feel calm and like and, 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 and I'll tell you, it makes me feel very hopeful and, and optimistic mm. and, 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 and excited about life, this idea of a new way to approach conflict or a new way. Or I know it's an ancient way, mm. but it's a – so I, I think that if you believe that the earth is alive, which I do, then I think that the earth is a living organism has – wants very much, and we're all part of the earth, it wants very much – for us to to get past this, the final little bits of growing pains that seem to be happening from our mm-hmm. transition from uh, being proto hominids into being what what we're going to become, mm. and I think that anybody who just opens themselves up a little bit to that, the energy of healing that I think is coming from the earth, um, I. I, I I, I think that anyone who opens themselves up to that just a little bit experiences some incredible things in their life. Hmm. And that feeling of connectivity right. that comes from uh, these kinds of conversations happening, I, I don't think there's anything like it. And you're certainly not going to get it from watching Nancy Grace talk about toddlers getting murdered in the Everglades. And I have, this... I have, I have one more question for you, Duncan. You do? Yeah, I do. It's important to me. <laughs> will, you, will, you, will you please do this again with us? Uh, <laughs> are you kidding? I would do this for... I would do this for I would do this over almost anything. You guys are the coolest. I really mean but it. I that don't last, know how much uh, how how much these types of interactions with you guys means to me. I mean, that really, last you just can't imagine. Though, it's it makes la- the, it, you just the, have no idea how much. The how last I, yes, the <laughs> last statement about uh, this the healing energy of the earth. Right, that that was a wonderful, wasn't that? And, can't, can't and that, that. that can't is why that. he's yeah. Guruji yeah. Th- to us. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we love you, Duncan. Yeah, we do. And I go love you too. Duncan Trussell Family Hour. Please go and uh, that podcast is just fantastic. And um, we're uh, Raghu Marcus and uh, David Kuyu, Silver, and it's Mind Rolling. Um, and and please do go to mindrollingpodcast.com for goodies and other stuff yeah good night duncan see you soon good night you guys wonderful chatting with you thank Thank you you. so much bye-bye